We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You can go ahead and take your seats. Good morning. Those last couple slides were just to test you and see how good your eyesight is. You're either feeling really great about yourself or you're like, I need to go to the doctor tomorrow. Um, uh, Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, this this text has been such such an encouragement for me this week, and I pray that you would uh, just come right now in this moment and that you would help it to be an encouragement for all of us. Um, That you would meet us wherever we find ourselves in this room this morning. Some of us come with just uh, a deep, a deep sense of your presence in our life. Um, We love to sing these songs. We we long to be in church every Sunday, to be reminded of the good news, to come to this table. And yet for others of us, this is, this is strange stuff, singing these songs about a wonderful cross that bids us to come and die. These things sound so hard to believe. God, would you, would you meet us wherever we are this morning, whether we're, we're full of belief or full of doubt or just somewhere in between, trying to figure out if we could ever believe these things? Or maybe having once believed them and trying to figure out if we could ever believe them again. Father, would you meet us right where we are this morning? 
Would you help us to see that though we are different in so many ways, we are, we are the same. We come as broken people, broken, messy people who are more in need of your grace than we know. And so we ask that you would meet us by your spirit and that you would do it in such a way that our lives would be changed. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, this, this morning, we are actually wrapping up a series that we've been in since Easter. So for the last five weeks, we've been looking at how the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms us. You know, Easter is where Christians, we, we celebrate the resurrection. And that's not just meant to be something that you kind of celebrate and move on some. I've said this every week, that the, the resurrection is something, it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It is something that once you believe it happened, it begins to change every part of your life. Philip Yancey puts it this way, he says, in many respects, I would find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. The resurrection makes him dangerous. If the resurrection is true, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Moreover, it means that he must be loose out there somewhere. And like the disciples, I never know where Jesus might turn up, how he might speak to me, and what he might ask of me. Christianity says this, either the resurrection happened or it didn't. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If he didn't, it changes nothing. But if he did, it changes everything. And so far we've looked at how the resurrection, it gives you a new identity. That, that your, your identity is not dependent upon who you are or what you have done or how impressive your resume is. It is that you are in Christ. And then we looked at how it gives you a whole new approach to freedom, which is, which is totally countercultural. Uh, then we looked at how the resurrection means that you can change the same, this is what Ephesians says, the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in your life, changing you. You are not stuck. That's what the resurrection means. And then last week, very light topic of sex, singleness, and marriage. We looked at how the resurrection shapes these things. Now, today, here's what we're looking at. We are going to be looking at how the resurrection impacts how we face suffering. Look at, look at verse 14. Paul says, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Now, I've said this throughout this series. You know, the New Testament writers, they keep talking about the resurrection. They keep going back to it over and over and over again and talking about how it practically shapes our lives. And then right here in the middle of these verses where Paul is talking about suffering and trials, he starts talking about the resurrection again. Why? Because the resurrection shapes how you do suffering. It has a lot to say about it. See, the resurrection, it's not just a historical event. No, the resurrection, it is good news for people who feel like their world has gone dark. If that's where you are this morning, friends, you are in a good place. There is good news for you in this passage. The resurrection, it is good news for the brokenhearted. It is good news not just for sinners, but it is good news for sufferers. 
Because the resurrection, it gives us a resource for dealing with suffering that you will find nowhere else. And we're going to look this morning at four ways this passage tells us the resurrection does that. So if you're a note taker, and if you're not, I know you just, you must have a, you know, incredible memory. So you're just piling this all in your head, right? Uh, if you're a note taker, here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at how the resurrection deals with the problem of suffering. And then we're going to look at how it assures us of God's presence in our suffering. And then we're going to look at how it means that there is purpose to all of our suffering. And then finally, we're going to see that the resurrection gives us the promise that we need for our suffering. So problem, presence, purpose, promise. That's a Holy Spirit-inspired outline right there. All right. The resurrection deals with the problem of suffering. The, the line in this passage that is most gripping to me is verse 16. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. You know, there are so many stories of pain and loss in this room. I know some of them, but I don't know a lot of them. There are a lot of stories of pain and loss in this room. And some of us, we are in the throes of suffering right now. And, and we feel like we are losing heart. Or, or maybe you don't feel like you're just losing heart. Maybe you feel like you are losing faith. How about that? I, I've been a pastor for 17 years. And I've seen more people walk away from Christianity for this reason than any other. Because of the suffering that comes into their life. Because the moment that suffering comes into our lives, that is the moment that we are most prone to doubt. And you know why? It's because the existence of suffering poses an incredible problem to the existence of God. Epicurus, who was a, he was a third century Greek philosopher, he puts it this way, he says, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Richard Dawkins, who's a, he's a scientist and an atheist, he, he says that he looks at all of the cruelty in the world, all of the suffering, all the injustice. And he, he writes this, he says, our universe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And what Dawkins is saying is this, he's saying, look, the existence of suffering and evil and injustice, these things, they make total sense of a world in which there is no God. They make total sense that the fact that there is no God who is all-loving and all-powerful. Now, as rational as that sounds, it's very problematic. In fact, I would argue that as much as you know, suffering, as much as it's a problem for those who believe in God, it's an even greater problem for those who don't. C.S. Lewis, you know, before he became a Christian, he was a staunch atheist. And he said that the reason that he rejected belief in God was because of all the suffering in the world until, as he says, he came to see 
that suffering actually provides a better argument for God's existence than for his non-existence. And this is what Lewis writes. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What, 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 was I, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. And here's what Lewis is saying. He's saying, look, if you believe that there is no God, then what basis do you have for being outraged at suffering and injustice? I mean, the whole principle of, 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 of nat a naturalistic worldview and evolutionary thinking is that the strong eat the weak. That suffering is the way that things are supposed to be. Or as Dawkins said, if there is no God, if there is no evil, if there is no good, if there is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, then how could you feel anything but indifferent when suffering comes into your life? What basis do you have to cry out, to lament, to say this is not the way things are supposed to be? See, the, the, the problem of suffering it's at least as big of a problem for those who don't believe in God as for those who do. And so therefore, it's a mistake to abandon, to think that abandoning belief in God somehow solves the problem of suffering. Now, that's point one. And that's a little academic and it's a little kind of intellectual. And here's the deal, you know, the problem of suffering, it is way more personal than it is philosophical. We, we need more than just intellectual arguments for our suffering. You know why? Because our suffering is not theoretical. No, it is real. And, and arguments cannot soothe it. And so the resurrection, it deals with the problem of suffering, but it goes even further because here's the second thing. It assures us of God's presence in our suffering. Look at verse 8. Paul says, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now here's what I love about this. Paul is being so honest about his suffering. He's being so honest about how suffering feels. He's saying, look, when you go through suffering, you know what it feels like? It feels like you are being crushed. And it feels like God has abandoned you. And it feels like you are all alone. You ever felt that? You ever felt like God has abandoned you in your suffering? You ever been that honest with God? Let me tell you, when you open the pages of the Bible, you know what you find page after page? are people who are that honest with God. I mean, it is littered throughout the Psalms. Let me just give you a couple examples. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 22, oh my God, I cry out, but you do not answer me. Psalm 143, answer me quickly, Lord, be not silent. From the first page to the last, the Bible is honest about suffering. It says this, it says that suffering can often feel like God is absent. But it also says this, it says the fact that it feels like God is absent doesn't mean that He actually is. So you may feel alone, but you're not alone. And you may feel abandoned, but you are not abandoned. And you may feel like God is far away from you, but no, God is close. And you know why Paul can say this? The reason Paul can say this is because of the resurrection. I said this all the way back at Easter, that the founder of every other religion is dead. Like really dead. Moses. Buddha, Muhammad, they are all dead, and no one says that they are alive, which means that you can know their teaching, but you cannot know their presence. But guess what? Jesus has risen. He is alive. And if, he, if you are in Him, His Holy Spirit is in you. And Jesus says this, I am with you always. Always. That means that Jesus is with you even and most especially in your suffering. Now let's, let's apply this just very quickly to two lies that Christians often believe in their suffering. Here's the first lie. The first lie is this. If I'm suffering, if, if, if things are going poorly in my life, it must mean that God is mad at me or that God doesn't love me or that I've done something wrong or that God is punishing me. Now, you need to know this. There are religions that teach that, actually. Buddhism and its belief in karma teach that. The basic premise of almost every religion is this. If you live a good life, things will go well for you. And if you live a bad life, things will not go well for you. And you see, the Bible never teaches this. In fact, it teaches the exact opposite. You know what the Bible says? It says, the only perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth the only one who obeyed God perfectly and who loved others perfectly lived a life of incredible suffering. Jesus lived a life of poverty and of rejection and of loneliness and of injustice. And you know what? You know what the Bible says? It says that God. The Father looked at him, and he was well pleased with him. See, just because you are suffering does not mean that God is mad at you, or that he is not pleased with you. Suffering is not in your life. It doesn't come into your life because you, God is paying you back for something. It's not a sign that God is mad at you. It's not a sign that God is far away from you. No, God is, Jesus says this, I am with you. Always. Here's another lie that we often believe in our suffering. God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? Man, I mean, that's like, just go walk down a Christian book aisle somewhere, and you will find that somewhere. God will never give you more than you can handle. You know what the problem with that 
statement is? Is that it points you inward. It, it, it says that you have this power inside of you to handle whatever comes your way and that God permits suffering in your life based on your ability to endure. But look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay, Paul is talking about our bodies, our physical bodies. He's saying our, our bodies are like jars of clay. They're fragile, they're breakable, they're powerless. And by treasure, what does Paul mean? Paul is not saying that our bodies are the treasure. No, he's saying our bodies hold the treasure. So what's the treasure? Look at the verse. We, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know what the treasure is? The treasure is God's presence and His power that is made available to you in your suffering. And Paul is saying, this is the key to actually navigating your suffering. It's not a power inside of you, it's actually a power outside of you. It's not your power, it's God's power. It's not your ability to endure, it's God's ability to endure. See, if you feel like God has let things happen in your life that are more than you can handle, guess what? You're right. But here's the thing, God will never let anything happen in your life that is more than He can handle. And that's the hope. See, He is with you at all times, in all things. You are not alone. And so Paul says this, therefore, do not lose heart. And that brings us to the third thing this passage teaches us. That the resurrection, it deals with the problem of suffering. It assures us of God's presence in our suffering. But third, the resurrection means that there is purpose to all of our suffering. And this is, you know, we need to know more than just that God is with us. We need to know that our suffering is not in vain, that it's not senseless. Have you ever noticed how families who lose loved ones, they often become the biggest voices and the biggest proponents for social change? I mean, think about, think about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's, it's actually been the families of George Floyd and the families of Breonna Taylor who have been the biggest voices to say, look, we need to know that good can come out of this, that justice can come out of injustice, that, that our loss and our suffering is not in vain. In other words, we need to know that our suffering actually has a purpose. And you know what Paul says? Paul says it doesn't just have a purpose. It has two purposes. And here's the first one. The first one is in verses 10 through 12. Paul says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, Paul is talking about his sufferings in ministry. And he's saying, look, that the sufferings that have come his way, because he had been, he's been laboring for God's kingdom, they're like birth pains. That it is suffering that is producing life for others. In other words, people are hearing the gospel, and they're coming to know Jesus. 
What Paul is saying is this, God uses our suffering in the lives of other people, in the lives of those around us. And that's true not just in ministry, but that is true with all suffering in the life of a Christian. Think about the particular ways that tragedy has come into your life and and how it has enabled you to care for other people. You know, maybe it's been infertility or miscarriage. Or maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you're, you're the victim of abuse. Maybe you've lost a parent or a child or a spouse. It is always the people who have been through what we have been through that we are most able to help and that we're most able to be helped by. Paul says, look, here's the first purpose in suffering. God uses it in the lives of those around you. It's not in vain. And here's the second thing. God doesn't just use it in the lives of others. He he uses your suffering in your own life. Look at verse 16. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul is saying the reason he does not lose heart in his suffering is because he knows that God is using it to renew him. That things are falling apart on the outside, but that there is this inner strength and this inner renewal and this inner transformation that is happening at the very same time on the inside. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh, this thing that he asked God to take away three times. We don't know what it is, but we know that it was some some chronic and painful reality in his life. And Paul begged God to take it away. And you know what God said? No. You know what Paul writes down from that? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul begins to look back on his own suffering, and he's saying, look, this is what, what he says in 2 Corinthians, this is what kept him from becoming conceited. It's what cultivated in him a deep humility, a deep joy, a deep strength, a deep dependence on God that he never would have had otherwise. What this passage is saying is that God does not simply work in your life despite suffering. He works in your life through suffering. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City and kind of one of my spiritual heroes and mentors, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about a year ago. And he he said this, he said, I wish I would have been able to grow over the years into the person of wisdom and joy without trouble. All the progress that I've made in the Christian life is because something has gone wrong in life. Suffering has been like a smelling salt to wake me up. And that is so hopeful. It's so hopeful because it means that God can use even the hardest things in your life for good things. That does not mean that we seek suffering. Let me say that again. That does not mean that we seek suffering. It means that we believe God can use suffering. Some of you 
The only reason you're in this room, the only reason you're in a church is because your life has fallen apart. You are not looking for God. And then your life imploded. And guess what? Now you're here. And the the, the very thing that was so tragic and so hard in your life is the very thing that God is using to actually bring you to himself. And you you can talk to a lot of Christians in this room who will tell you all the ways that they can look back and see how God has used suffering in their life for good. And you might be saying, well, pastor, you don't know my pain. You don't know my story. You know, maybe that's true for Tim Keller. Maybe that's true for the Apostle Paul. Maybe that's true for other people in this room. But you don't know what I've gone through. You know, my story, it is too hard. It is too sad. It is too broken. It is too unjust. And let me just say this. You're right. I don't know your story. But God does. And he can use your suffering. And you say, well, how can I ever believe that? You can believe it because of the resurrection. You know what the resurrection means? It means that God took the saddest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. The unjust suffering of the perfect Son of God. God took the saddest thing in the world and he used it for the best thing in the world, which is the salvation for all those who know their need enough to call upon him. See, if, G- if God can use Jesus' suffering, guess what? He can use yours. And maybe you're thinking, you know, okay, that sounds good, but it's still not enough because I'm hurting and I don't see how God is using it. And, and I, I'm, I'm stay up all night weeping because of the things that are happening in my life right now. Well, that, that brings us to the last point. That the resurrection doesn't just deal with the problem of suffering, doesn't just assure us of God's presence in it. It doesn't just say there's a purpose to our suffering. But the resurrection gives us the promise that we need for our suffering. Now, Paul says something so shocking in this passage. In verse 17, he says this, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul calls his sufferings light and momentary. You know, I don't know what you've been through. I can tell you the Apostle Paul went through some pretty terrible stuff. He was, he was beaten. He was, he was flogged five times. He was shipwrecked at sea, not once, not twice, not three times. Can you beat that in your life? I mean, three times shipwrecked at sea. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. Historians think that he was eventually beheaded. How can Paul call his sufferings light and momentary? And for that matter, how can he call our sufferings light and momentary? I mean, that that just almost feels dismissive, doesn't it? It just sounds like he's, he's like he's minimizing our sorrow. Friends, here's the truth. There are some things that happen in life that are so hard 
And they are so sad that you will not see any good come out of them in this world. And you see, this is why Paul starts talking about the promise of another world. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul is not minimizing our suffering. Paul is pointing us to a world in which there will be no more suffering. And there will be no more sadness. And there will be no more sorrow. Teresa of Avila, she was a famous mystic, she said this. She said, the first hug and kiss from God in heaven will make all of your suffering look like one night in a bad hotel. See, if God doesn't exist, there, is, there, there really is no hope to get into the story. There is nothing but what Dawkins says is blind, pitiless indifference. It means that evil and suffering and decay are the main storylines. See, but if the resurrection is true, it means no, they're not. It means that another world is coming. A world where all that is wrong will be made right. A world where everything that's broken will be made whole. A world where God is going to take even your greatest sorrows and somehow reweave them into something beautiful. A world where all things, as the Bible ends, will be made new. And you might be thinking, you know, that sounds wonderful. And it also sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like wishful thinking. How could we ever believe that this future promise, this future world is true? A little over two years ago, I lost a good friend of cancer. His name was Jameson Stockhouse. Some of you might remember him. Jameson actually preached at our church. Uh, he was a father with four young kids. He was a pastor. And he died from cancer. And in his last day, days, as he was dying, um, he lost the ability to talk. He, he, could, he could basically just whisper a couple words. And one of our, one of our shared kind of pastor friends went to visit him in these kind of final moments. And when he walked into the room, there was a Bible sitting on the bedside table. He said that Jameson looked at him and he whispered, read. And he pointed at the Bible. My friend picked it up and he read Romans 8. And he read John chapter 11. And he read 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't know these passages, all of them talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They talk about the promise of our own resurrection. And they talk about the hope of the world to come. And after each passage that he read, Jameson, you know, only able to muster a few words together, would whisper this. He would say, We know it's true. We know it's true. 
You know why we know it's true? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. That is the Christian hope, friends. That just as death was not the end for Jesus, it will not be the end for us. And our hope in this promised future, this great future, it is not just wishful thinking. It is anchored in history. It is rooted in something that has already happened. That is how we know it's true. What we most need in our suffering is to know that it will not last forever. And this table points us to that day. It points us to the promise that every tear will be wiped away. And do you know the hands that are going to wipe those tears away? They're the hands of Jesus. They are hands that bear their own scars and their own suffering. I mean, this is the wonder of the Christian gospel, is that our God suffered. He knows suffering. He took it upon himself on the cross. He was crushed. He was struck down. He was in despair. He was abandoned. He was abandoned not only by his friends, but by his father. This is why Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This table reminds us that on the cross, Jesus lost. Jesus was all alone. He lost God's presence in his suffering so that you and I would never lose God's presence in our suffering, even though at times it will feel like it. Here is the invitation for us today as we come to this table. Whatever you are going through, Jesus understands it. And he is with you in it. And he can use any of it in your life and in the lives of those around you. And here's the best news. One day he will heal it. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we find at this table, for the comfort that we find, that we come to a Savior who has suffered just like us, and who hasn't just suffered like us, but who has suffered for us. And so we pray that you would take this tiny piece of bread, this little wafer, and this little cup, and that you would give us faith to see all that is held before us in this small meal, this great hope, this great promise that one day we will sit at table with you in a new world 
in a new heavens and a new earth where all things are restored and made right. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.